Welcome back, everybody. This is the Cod Red Podcast. I am Megan Light. And I'm Jesse Light. And we are just two dog lovers here to talk about some true crime and some horror movies and our dogs, too. Speaking of, Derby got groomed today. She's so cute. Megan almost took another dog home yesterday from our friend's house. But it wasn't their dog. It was just a wandering dog. And uh, she didn't have a tag that said who she was or where she belonged. So that means she's free to take. <laughs> she was the cutest little she thing, though. She was super though. cute, super yeah. sweet, and submissive. You'd say, what, she was a golden retriever mix, probably, I guess. Yeah. She had little bitty legs. She was so freaking cute. Little munchkin legs. So freaking cute. She would have fit in perfect here. She definitely has missed a few meals. Yeah, she's she skinny was, girl. Yeah, you could feel her ribs. And she needed a good brushing. Is she a little grinchy toes? I was looking for her when I left yesterday. Because I was going to snatch her ass off the street. Like, I don't know how she got in the Jeep, but she just jumped in herself with these little, 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 little legs. That would have been something if I got home and she was... Surprise! There. Ripley wouldn't have liked that, though. Well, Ripley's a bitch, regardless. That's what I'm saying. So we got Derby Groom today, and she's so freaking cute. We have the two boys in cones, because we always have to have something going on at this house. Damn allergies, but Falco loves his cone. Oh, yeah, like, he that's He wiggles his, his butt whenever we bring that cone over to him. He's so excited. It's like his little security blanket. I say he started licking his arm because Mowgli was in a cone, and Falco's like, what is this shit? I swear. He, he knows. He wanted his cone. Yeah, it's his security helmet. And we're just trying to get Mowgli to stop scratching his face off. It does look better, though. Yeah. Got quite the regimen for him. With all his different medications, and then I've got this ointment stuff to put on him. And and I swear he doesn't think about itching it until he's by himself outside. So we just got to keep an eye on him. Yeah, that's why I put the cone back on him earlier. He was rolling around in the grass, and I was like, oh, this won't be good. Yeah, because when he's inside, he doesn't mess with it. Well, we yell at him. True. Falco's used to us yelling at him, so it has no effect. Mowgli, on the other hand, is like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> the girls are fine. It's just the boys. That's all. It's just the boys. Divas. I swear. The privileged life. Let's see. Movie-wise. What did we watch last night? I can't pronounce it. You already know I can't pronounce it. With Florence Pugh in it. It's like... Malvolent, malvolent. I don't know. It's something like that. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to look it up right now. Malevolent, right? I don't know how to say it honestly. It was all right. You'd you'd seen it before, and I put it on because I have two more episodes of Big Sky yet. Big Sky left, and I didn't want to watch them both last night and then just be done with the series. So I was like, I'm gonna. Put a movie on instead. It was it, pretty good, though. I liked it. It had a different ending than I expected, even though I figured it out before it happened. You did? Yeah. Obviously, Herman was still alive. Obviously. Obviously. And then I figured the mom was 
crazy because, well, as soon as she was like, he's a sweet boy, I was like, oh, shit. That's that cha Texas Chainsaw Massacre stuff right there. Excuse you, sir. We did watch a new movie, though, on Netflix Missing. Oh. And that was really good. If y'all haven't yes. watched that yet, that was awesome. Awesome. It makes, so, it makes me want to go ahead and get a MacBook so I can be connected to everything. Yeah, if you're going to watch Missing, you need to drop, put your phone on the ground, put it on mute, and just focus on the TV because they use texting and they use her little MacBook the whole time. So, and half the time, not even saying words, you're just reading from text messages. Yeah, it was really good, though. So you got to pay attention. I missed the first, like, maybe 10 minutes. But I mean, you I didn't, knew the story. Though. Yeah, I didn't have to watch them to know what was going on. I yeah, really enjoyed it. I liked that one. That was a good one. Solid choice. We put the mummy on too the other night because that's always <laughs> a good go-to. But that's about it, movie-wise. Right? I, I think normally so. I normally yeah. make notes, but I didn't make any notes. That was it. Okay, then we're done with that. Jesse has the case for us this week. Uh, obviously, we like to talk shit to each other and about each other. He only had like... I already know what you're going to say. He only had like two and a half, three weeks to do this. Shut up. <laughs> of course, he just finishes it like minutes before we come up here. Procrastination kills me, man. I it's swear. fun, love. It's cool. You're done. We're ready to do it. You ready? Well, you know, I had I had like three pages typed up two weeks ago, but then I just scratched all that and started over. You did? Yeah. You didn't I was like, like I'm it? not feeling this. I yeah. understand. Because I mean, I was back and forth, so. It's fine. We're here for it. I'm interested. I was trying to read my book while you had part of your thing going downstairs so I wouldn't like pay attention but then I was like oh huh oh the one-sided documentary that I was listening yes. to yes let's hear the other side shall we well I'll give both sides I guess all right fine, fine fine yeah I had just been back and forth about this case and I can definitely see arguments for both sides of the law here it's frustrating because so little evidence was found and it just seemed like the detectives were just searching for a confession, whether it was coerced or not. And I will get into that as we go along. I just want you to know that it was tough. Everyone wants justice. You know, when they ask for life for a life, which is understandable mm -hmm. in situations like that, but you want justice from the person that actually did the crime... So just keep that in mind. Like okay. if he didn't kill him, somebody else killed him, you want the person that actually killed the victim to be punished. Correct. My sources are Washington Post. There was an article written by Lynn Duke and then Encyclopedia of Arkansas, Murderpedia, Case Law, Fairchild versus State, and then THV 11, there was an article called Sentence to Death. There was also a documentary on it. Now, this story takes place back on February 26, 1983 in Arkansas. 
At about 6.30 p.m. that evening, Arkansas State Trooper Danny Ferguson clocked a silver, a silver Toyota Tercel with two black males going 62 miles per hour in a 45-mile-per-hour speed zone just inside the city limits of North Little Rock, Arkansas. Okay, I don't mean to go on a, a, a side Go on. Side note, but when you said Tercel, all I can think about is 10 Things I Hate About You, David Crumholtz. Is that what he drove? He talks about his Tercel, and I've never heard it anywhere else, but you sang it here and then him saying it in that movie. I've never heard of it either. Yes, that's fucking that, that's that documentary. That documentary had the Tercel in there. I was like, I've never seen one of those in real life, I don't think. Yeah, I've never heard it spoken besides you right now and then 10 Things I Hate About You. That's what I was like. Am I pronouncing this right? A Tercel. Yeah. Well, during the chase, Ferguson dropped his mic under the seat, so he wasn't able to like call back up during all the craziness. He caught up to the Toyota, which had come to a stop in Scott, Arkansas. Okay. In this open field with weeds that were waist high. He could see that the driver's side door was wide open and the driver was long gone at this point, just running off into the field. However, the passenger was still in the vehicle. Ferguson called out orders to him and the passenger obeyed. And Ferguson noticed that there was a gun in the man's belt, so... He made his way back to his patrol car to call for backup. And as he was rummaging for his radio, the man took off. Of course. And, he, and when Ferguson looked back up, he saw that the passenger was long gone too. So just great. And Ferguson at the time had only identified the suspects as two black males. Okay. Police would soon find out that the vehicle was stolen it had Florida license plates, and it belonged to a Marjorie Greta Mason. She was a 22-year-old woman who had moved from her home state of Florida just 10 days prior to begin her career as an Air Force nurse in North Little Rock. Police checked the apartment of Marjorie, but they came up missing. She was nowhere to be found. The next morning, a farmer in Scott, Arkansas, called the police because he had found a passport along with important-looking documents scattered all across his pasture that looked to belong to Marjorie Greta Mason. And I'll just call her Greta from now on. Okay. So Pulaski County Lieutenant Tom Wagoner showed up to the farmer's land, and he would be the one to find the woman's body, lying there half-naked behind an abandoned farmhouse on the property. It was Greta Mason. He also found some article of clothing inside the farmhouse, and Greta had been shot twice in the head. Oh, my God. So a little background on Greta. She grew up in Panama City, Florida, but they moved around a bit because her father was in the Navy. She was the older sister of four, and everyone in her life respected her for just her natural leadership ability that she showed. She was a former homecoming queen and a cheerleader, and she cared about her church greatly, which was at the Cove. She got along with everybody there, and she treated everybody as equals. And she took great pride in her schoolwork. She studied at Florida State, then did her ROTC, and one of her brothers said that Greta did 
a special boot camp in which there were like 600 women that attended and only 10 of them would receive scholarships. And she was one of them. You go, girl. Yeah. When she finished up schooling, she became a second lieutenant nurse in the Air Force, like right out the gates. She just seemed to make large successes look easy. And her future was just so promising. It's just very sad to see her life cut short like that. And I think who she was and the way she died led the police to focus all their attention on finding the killer as fast as possible. And at first it was thought that the crime scene was in Pulaski County, which is, as mm-hmm. Megan knows, like Little Rock, the main, probably central. what, central Arkansas county. But the farmhouse was actually about 500 yards from the county line in Lone Oak County. Oh, but Pulaski County Sheriff's Department ended up taking the lead on the case because they just had a lot more manpower and would be able to cover a wider population. And they were led by none other than County Sheriff Tommy Robinson. Hey, Tommy! Yeah, and if you listen to Episodes 41, Part 2, Megan actually introduced Tommy Robinson to us. He had been state director of public safety in Bill Clinton's first term as governor of Arkansas. And he had quite the reputation, right? Well, he has something going for him, that's for sure. He was, I mean, known to use like abusive law enforcement techniques during his four years as sheriff. He was just this hard-nosed guy, but he got a lot of shit done. And then, you know, just people feared him. That's for sure. So like one instance, when a state prison refused to relieve his county jail's overcrowding, did you tell this story? I did not. No. So Robinson, as like a publicity stunt or just kind of to send a message, he took a group of his prisoners to the state prison and just handcuffed them to the fence. Like, here you go. (laughs) Now they're your problem. And uh, oh, Tommy. the state police threatened to put him in jail until he, like, stopped doing that. But he just did it the next day again. I love it <laughs> so much. <laughs> He's like, fix your shit. Yeah. So Take these guys. He was over this whole case. So now Greta Mason being in Arkansas for only 10 days, she didn't really have a chance to gain any enemies. This was thought by most just to be a victim of opportunity type deal. She was actually out shopping for furniture in North Little Rock on that Saturday afternoon because she's only been there for 10 days. Yeah. And being a Saturday afternoon, sometimes these furniture stores would close early. So that's kind of what happened. She got to one at like 4.15 or so, and it was already closed. So must have been a mom and pop shop. It was. And it was said she was just walking back to her car when two black males forced her into her own vehicle and took off with her. Oh, shit. And in the search of the suspects that fled the car, police found a blue and white hat with the words CAT in all caps and then diesel power on it in in a driveway of a home nearby where the stolen vehicle was abandoned. They strongly believed that the hat belonged to one of the suspects. 
And North Little Rock police officer Wayne Chaney identified this specific hat as belonging to Barry Lee Fairchild because he knew this guy pretty well. He had many run-ins with the law, and he had helped Chaney in drug busts in the past. And I guess he wore that hat I guess, frequently. right. That's the only thing I can... can I wear that um, one Mud Honey's yeah. hat all the time. It's pretty gnarly. <laughs> Well, Barry Lee Fairchild had been in and out of prison for theft and robbery since he was a teenager, and he was 27 at the time. So, for example, when he was 16 years old, he stole a horse. What? I know. That's not something you would think that in 1980s some, that would happen, that but in 1970s. Stuff. God, only here. Yeah. He was a drinker, and he spent a lot of time at the gambling clubs. He usually stayed at his mom's house or with his girlfriend, and he would make money here and there working as like a bus boy or working on a grocery truck delivering goods, and then he'd make some money as an informer on street, on street drug deals. He grew up in North Little Rock in a poor black neighborhood. In school, he didn't do too hot. He was recommended for special education. He dropped out in the ninth grade. And according to court records, he was illiterate. Even his mother said he was always slow. Now, there was another confidential informant that named Barry Lee Fairchild and his brother Robert Fairchild as the two involved in this crime. Now, this informant was known as being right maybe 50% of the time. Oh, Lord. He was best described as being generally reliable and known to embellish stories. But regardless of that, his information led to a warrant being signed to arrest Barry. But the warrant was actually for a different crime because they didn't have any strong evidence to pick him up for the Greta Mason murder. He was actually linked to an officer-involved shooting back in December of 1982. Barry Lee Fairchild and another man named Harold Green were identified as the two men responsible for this store robbery. Now, Harold Green was known for petty crimes, and him and Barry Lee ran around in the same crowd. And the officer that responded to the store robbery was shot at. But he wasn't able to identify which of the two guys shot at him. He just mm -hmm. knows he was shot at. Police couldn't find Barry at first, though, but they were able to pick up his brother, Robert, and question him. But they really didn't have anything on him to keep him there, and they didn't charge him. So they had to let him go. There's something about Robert Fairchild I need to talk about here. Uh-oh. So I feel like it needs to be brought up. So he was sentenced to 40 years in prison for another crime in 1990. Okay. So that's seven, seven years, years later. This. He was charged with kidnapping and rape of Jeffrey Beatty. He had been convicted previously of four other felonies, so he was sentenced as a habitual offender to a term of the 40 years on each offense, and the sentences to be served concurrently. Now, this kidnapping and rape case was strange. So he invited this Jeffrey guy over to his house, and they ate and drank beer and, and looked at nudie mags together. <laughs> and Robert brought out this red robe and demanded Jeffrey take his clothes off and wear it. 
What? And Jeffrey refused and tried to leave, but Robert got in the way and hit him over the head a few times and forced him to remove his clothes and lie face down on the kitchen floor. Uh, so this is a whole other thing, but it's just were those crazy. Were those uh, gay nudie mags then? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. But what was okay. weird was Robert's sister was in the home the whole time, just like in her room, minding her own business. Oh, my God. And she came out to cook, and that was like right around the time Jeffrey escaped and ran out the door. But Robert caught up to him a few blocks down the road, and at knife point, he forced Jeffrey back to the house. Now, luckily, a passing motorist saw this altercation and noticed the police, or and notified the police, and that's when Robert was caught. But I just thought, hmm. What what is she listening to? Does she have headphones on like the size of ours, <laughs> and it just like noise canceling a man screaming? Because you know that man was screaming. Yeah, I don't know. What? That's just crazy. Was his sister drugged? I don't know. Drunk? When he was serving time in prison, Robert jumped one of the officers on the evening shift named James Cannon. This was in 1999. He began punching him in the stomach, and then he was able to steal his flashlight, and he used that to beat Cannon over the head at least 10 times. Oof. And then he drug his body across the barracks floor, then dropped him and began going through Cannon's pockets. So by the time help came, Cannon was just in really bad shape. I mean, 10 times over the head with a flashlight. Mm. He ended up with a fractured skull, brain damage, mm. and he was in a severe head injury comatose state. Ugh. Now, he somehow survived this whole brutal attack, but he was definitely left with permanent damage as a result so for one he was unable to control his like normal social inhibitions mm -hmm. which caused him just to randomly have inappropriate out outbursts like a Tourette's thing I guess and then he could no longer see out of his right eye and his whole left side of his body was extremely weak so he had to walk around with a cane but he got so tired easily that he would just go with the, the wheelchair most of the time but all that to say is maybe they should have probably investigated robert fairchild a little bit more than they did on the greta mason case because i mean he's a bad apple regardless yeah he's capable of such a crime as as rape and he probably would have murdered that that jeffrey guy too oh if absolutely he you know. so he's certainly more than I feel like he is more than capable than his brother Barry anyways. But that's just me on the outside looking in at this mm -hmm. whole thing. They were still looking for Barry Lee Fairchild. They stopped by his mother's house and questioned her. And Officer Cheney spoke with his mother and told her that they were going to shoot him on sight because he was considered armed and dangerous at the time. And she didn't know anything about the Greta Mason murder. She just thought that he was wanted for another robbery. She told him that she had given Barry $200 of her $212 paycheck and told him to just take a bus to California and get out of town. Oh, my gosh. So Sheriff Tommy Robinson led his deputies on this manhunt for Barry Lee Fairchild 
And now they knew that he was on a bus headed towards California. And they found out that he had boarded a bus in Conway, Arkansas, which is 42 miles northwest of Scott, Arkansas. And deputies were able to stop this bus in Russellville, Arkansas, which is another 45 miles west of Conway. Wow. But somehow, Fairchild was able to sneak past the deputies without them recognizing him. I saw one article that said that he had put on a wig and a dress to disguise himself as a woman, but that's the only article I found that said that, so I don't know if that is true or not. I just know that he was not found at that time, so he got away. Police searched for Fairchild in Russellville for almost two days. It was all over the news, all over the radio, and finally they received a call from a Russellville man that reported this black man that matched the description that they heard on the radio. He had knocked on their door and was asking if that he could use their phone to call himself a taxi. So they just said, well, we'll... We'll call the taxi for you, but really they were calling the, the police. police. Yeah. And this was six days after they found Greta's body, so. Fairchild's arrest was nothing short of a shit show, okay? <laughs> Some officers would later say that just a handful of police showed up. Another officer would claim that there were anywhere from 30 to 50 officers outside the home. But Russellville police officer Ronald Stowball was the first on the scene. And he saw Fairchild through the window of the front door and, and pushed it open, calling for him to put his hands in the air. And Stowball's arrest report would say that he grabbed a hold of Fairchild's shirt and pulled him out of the door. Mm-hmm. Then two more officers stepped in to help as they got outside the house. Fairchild wasn't going down without a fight and they were struggling to get him in cuffs so they all like fell to the ground and here's where it kind of gets ugly so Jubilee which is the German Shepherd canine officer from the Pulaski County Department gets on Fairchild and and takes a bite at his head and neck area oh no yeah now there were conflicting reports saying that Fairchild was already in custody when the dog was released on him, and then others said that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Either way, Fairchild was put in the back of a patrol car and taken straight to the hospital where he received between like six and nine stitches. I saw articles that said seven, I saw articles that said nine, but it was like six to nine, so either way, he got stitches. He bled a little bit. And the nurse there wrapped his head up with this big white bandage over his head. Sam Chamberlain, who was Jubilee's handler, said that Major Stowball grabbed at the suspect and knocked him off balance, causing him to fall to the ground. The suspect fell face down on the ground in the front yard near the street, and Jubilee grabbed him by his clothing and held him until officers were able to subdue him and place him in handcuffs. Well, so. evidence points otherwise, because <laughs> yeah. if he had to get stitches, I don't think he grabbed the clothing. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. When Barry Lee was released from the hospital, the Russellville police charged him with resisting arrest and fleeing, and he was given a citation for that, and then he was handed over to the Pulaski deputies. 
I was wondering when you said there's upwards to maybe 30 or so officers, I was trying to think which departments were going to be out that way. I'm sure it was Pulaski, deputies, state troopers, and then the Russellville Police Department. And then you'd have to have Faulkner County because that's a Faulkner County city, right? Russellville's in Hope County, so there's probably... Oh, is it? Yeah, there was probably some Hope County deputies there as well. I thought that was still Faulkner. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure it was a multitude of a (laughs) mix of different departments out there. I would not be surprised if there was 50 officers out there, especially for killing a nurse and then being on the run for six days. Well, I was just thinking, like, sometimes in Conway or, like, especially Sherwood... They're real bad about, like, if one person has a a traffic stop, you'll see several come up behind because there's just nothing else going on. So it's like, oh, what's going on, guys? Yeah. You need help? You need assistance? Right. And I'm sure there wasn't that much going on in Russellville during that time. We had, uh, when I was going to go drop off Derby here in Greenbrier, there was uh, Greenbrier and then there was a Faulkner County Sheriff. There's a few vehicles of each, and there was some lady standing outside of her car in handcuffs and them going through her vehicle. And, of course, by the time I came back from dropping her at the groomers, they had already loaded her car up on a, a tow truck. And I was like, man, I missed it. <laughs> Pulaski County Sheriff sat Barry Lee down two different times that night, immediately following his release from the hospital. Two videotaped confessions that were four hours apart. The first confession was recorded at 2.30 a.m. In this one, he had street clothes on, and in the second video, he was wearing an orange jumpsuit, which is just kind of strange. There were definitely some inconsistencies between what Barry Lee told them and the facts of the case. So Lieutenant Wagner and Officer Wayne Cheney were in the room with Barry Lee, and Lieutenant Wagner was asking the questions, and he asked Fairchild what happened on the 26th of February. And Fairchild said, we picked this woman up. And Wagner asked, who's we? Fairchild said, me and Harold. So Harold Green is who he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Wagner asked, where did you pick this woman up at? And Fairchild said, out there by that furniture store. Wagner asked, Little Rock or North Little Rock? And Fairchild said, North Little Rock furniture store. Wagner asked, what happened when y'all got in the car? And so Fairchild explains. He said, we drove down to Scott. We went back down on the street. We went back off in the field, went across a cattle guard through an opening, pulled up there in front of an old house, and then after we pulled up there, he got out the car with the woman and went in the house. Wagner says, who's he? And Fairchild says, Harold Green. Wagner asked him, did he have the gun on him? And Fairchild said, yes, sir. And Wagner asked, what did, he, what did you do? And Fairchild said, I stayed in the car going through papers. When he heard the gunshots... Fairchild said he ran inside the farmhouse and saw that Harold had shot her, and he asked Harold, what you done did? (laughs) A little later on, before the second confession, the officers brought Barry over to the crime scene, and they did a little walkthrough, then brought him back for the second confession, which somehow eliminated any inconsistencies that the first confession had. 
In fact, a lot of the second confession looked kind of rehearsed. Hmm. Well, now I know why he's in different clothing. Oh, because they... They took him out to the crime yeah. scene. He's in custody. Oh, okay, that makes sense. As far as, like, being rehearsed, the police had pretty much... It seemed like they told him what to say. You could see on the video recording that he would be asked a question and then he'd look away from the camera at someone that wasn't on screen to, like, maybe get a confirmation as to what he was supposed to say. Oh. Then he would speak... So, like, for example, he was asked how many times Greta was raped, and he held up two fingers, like, asking someone behind the camera if that was the correct Like, answer. looking past. Yeah, and then he said twice. And then Wagner asked Fairchild if he had seen where Greta's hose and panties were, and Fairchild answered by saying he saw them in a cabinet in the farmhouse. This was kind of crucial to the investigation because officers had supposedly failed to find Mason's panties in their initial search of the crime scene. Mm -hmm. Then after that confession, an officer said that he went back and found them in in a low, open kitchen cabinet. So either they didn't search that in the first place and Barry told them the truth, or they planted them there and made Barry give them that detail on video. I don't know. I'm going with the first bit. Well, I don't know. I mean, they can't really prove it. Like, I don't know either. Oh, Wagner also asked Barry Lee if he threw anything out the window of the car during the getaway. Fairchild said, yes, a pair of gloves he had worn during the crime. Now, this mention of the gloves would definitely help the police later explain at the trial why they couldn't find any fingerprints of berries in the car or at the crime scene. And these gloves were never found. So, like, was he coerced to say that he Put had gloves there on? With gloves? Yeah, I don't. Barry Lee never said in the confessions that he was the one that shot Greta Mason. He said it was Harold. But in Arkansas, you can receive the death penalty for being an accomplice to murder. It's called felony murder, correct? Yes. What investigators found out several weeks later was that Harold Green was actually in jail in Colorado during the time of Greta's murder. I was literally about to say, how does a man like Barry... And then you already said that Harold had petty crimes escalate to kidnap, rape, and murder. Yeah. So now it makes more sense that it wasn't even... It wasn't Harold. It wasn't even Harold with him. So his whole confession about Harold was a lie. Who, who was he covering for, if that's the case? Could it be his brother, maybe? I don't know. And then should his confession even be counted? I don't know how that works. Like yeah, because they the pretty whole much thing's disproved a lie, it. Was it even, yeah, was it even reliable at that point? I don't know. But in any case, his trial began in Lone Oak County Circuit on July 26, 1983. He was facing capital murder charges, so that pretty much answers that. Cecil Tedder was the circuit court judge, and during the trial, Fairchild, Fairchild recanted his confession. As he should. He testified that Sheriff Tommy Robinson and Major Larry Dill 
beat the confession out of him. He said Sheriff Robinson hit him over the head with a shotgun and Major Dill kicked him in the stomach multiple times and threatened to kill him if he didn't confess. Well, if he had those injuries and went to jail, I would have thought a nurse would over would look at him and be able to corroborate the fact that he had, you know, marks on him. Or could you not see that those like that part of his head that he's talking about in the video, you think? So he says later on that that bandage was from after being beaten oh. up by Tommy Robinson. But they later get the nurse from the hospital to testify saying that she wrapped him with the bandage after she gave him stitches. So okay, it's so. like, who do you believe? I don't. I'd believe the nurse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because I'm yeah. sure that's a documented thing that she did in his medical files with a time and a date. Oh, yeah, for sure. So I would believe the nurse. And Fairchild said that they made him carefully rehearse the facts of the case before they did the second videotape confession. He said they even wrote down keywords on a piece of paper so he would remember specifics such as the gloves and such as where the panties were. He said he told them Harold Green's name because that's the name they wanted him to use. That's the name they kept bringing up and kept bringing up. How strange. Right. You would think that they would, if they were coercing him to use Harold Green's name, they would know that Harold Green was in Colorado in jail. Why would they use that name? And you already said that he's illiterate. So if he's got like a script, I don't think he'd follow a script unless they had to keep turning the camera off and then tell him, okay, say this word. Because if he's, if he doesn't understand what he's looking at on paper, how is he going to read it? Yeah. And I mean, well, they spent 20 minutes apparently rehearsing. So if he just knew a few words. I'll give him that. Now, Fairchild's attorneys tried to show that there was a pattern of abuse involving Sheriff Tommy Robinson and his deputies. They brought in 12 different black males that were all questioned by the Pulaski County deputies over the Greta Mason murder. They all claimed that they were beaten to get confessions out of them. And Fairchild was the only one that gave in to these beatings. So it could have been 12 other options and Barry's just the one that was the most submissive at the end. That's what the, his lawyers seemed to think was because he was kind of mentally challenged that he was the one that was easily coerced, I guess. Okay. So if it wasn't him, it would have been one of the other 12 and they would put him in the car. Is that what they're going with? I guess it sounds like if you're if you're looking on their side of things, yeah, that they were just trying to get a confession out of anybody. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Was Tommy up for re-election again? Because <laughs> I mean, they didn't have any evidence really to go off of. It was just mainly trying to get that confession out mm-hmm. of somebody, like him and Bob Trout. That whole mob angle that was never an angle. Oh yeah, on my case. Yeah. But when I'm watching this, so there was a video, and I watched some of the video, and it it looked to me like Barry Lee was just sitting there comfortable with these guys. 
like just having a conversation with him. He didn't look like he was scared to death or he didn't look like he'd been banged up or anything besides that little bandage over his head. But that was prior. Yeah. So he just looked like he was having this chill conversation with these deputies. And Tommy Robinson denied these allegations and said that when they got Barry Lee to the sheriff's department, they could tell that he was exhausted and said, as a matter of fact, we were pretty nice to him. We, we even got him an aspirin for his headache. <laughs> he said that Barry Lee was not coerced or threatened in any way. And Major Larry Dill testified that neither him nor Sheriff Robinson ever hit Barry Lee with a gun or anything. So it's just like, who, who are you going to believe? Yeah. Fairchild's lawyers really had no proof of them mistreating Fairchild. There was no real evidence of that. One thing that did hurt the defense's case was what I said earlier about the bandage. He said that it was due to a blow to the head by Tommy Robinson's gun when, in fact, he got it at the hospital from Jubilee. I like that name for a dog. Jubilee. And then speaking of lack of evidence, though, there's really no evidence to go off in the case for the prosecutors. Really, the main thing that they had against Barry Lee was the confession. No fingerprints in the car or at the scene of the crime. The blood type of the semen on the victim did not match Barry Lee's hmm. blood type. Fairchild had blood type A, and the blood type O is what was found. The hat that was picked up that they claimed to belong to Barry Lee had hair strands that were in the hat that did not belong to him. Oh. So the bullets that were removed from Greta Mason's brain and put into evidence were somehow missing from evidence. Hmm. I don't know how that happens, but we've had cases in the past where that's happened, just misplaced them, I guess. I don't know. Strange. I never heard anything about a gun. One other thing that investigators did discover was a watch a watch that allegedly had belonged to Greta that Barry took from her and sold to his sister Irene for only $20. Greta's father testified that that was the watch that he gifted Greta for her birthday. And Greta's mother recalled the last time she saw Greta with the watch, and Greta told her that she needed it, a, a more professional-looking watch, because all she had was this Snoopy watch. So if that was really Greta's watch, how did Barry get his hands on it, you know, other than helping in the kidnap of Greta? So I feel like that was a really important part of this case. You know, that when you said watch, the first thing I thought of? Melissa Witt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was like, please don't say Mickey Mouse watch. After two and a half hours of deliberation, the jury of six men and six women came to a conclusion and convicted Barry Lee Fairchild of capital murder, and he was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Really? Really. I would not have guessed that. He participated in a crime in which a murder occurred. He was charged under the Arkansas capital murder law in which an accomplice can be found responsible for a death, even if he didn't pull the trigger. Correct. Felony murder. And it's just so hard to get past a confession like that. 
Yeah, but even it if it was coerced, that's like one of the main. It's not often I side I know. with, you know, I'm the, the same bad way guy. Right but now. that's. It's like oh, there's a lot of reasonable doubt know. there. Yeah, I need to know who was on this jury and what they talked about. They were talking about sandwiches or something else <laughs> back right. there. I feel like two and a half hours was a little short for this. Yeah, because it's just such an obstacle to get past a confession, though. And if there was no confession, they'd have nothing. Nothing, though. True. Nothing. Nothing. So that even shows you there's no evidence. Except the watch. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. But he could have found it. I don't know. I'm just trying to be devil's advocate. That's like a over one here. in a trillion chance of finding her. Hey, watch. I had a lot of cute little Disney and Snoopy watches and stuff growing up. No, it was the it was the professional watch that he had. Oh, I thought you were talking about the Snoopy one. I was like, I've had a Snoopy watch. Well, the before. Snoopy watch is what she had, and then she needed a professional. Her dad watch got for her, her a big girl work. watch yeah. for work. Okay, yeah. I'm with you now. Oh. I would have kept Snoopy. <laughs> right. Well, she probably kept it, but... For our fun occasions. Yeah. <laughs> now, Greta's mother said she was thankful to God that justice was served, and she thanked the attorneys and the judge and the jury for giving them justice. Barry Lee entered death row in September of 1983, and his execution date was set for November 10th of that same year. Wow, that's fast. fast. Yeah, but it doesn't... End here because there would just be a string of appeals. Arkansas Supreme Court granted a stay of execution pending its review of the conviction. So for the next decade, Fairchild's life would just revolve around these execution dates set, execution stays, while they went through the process of appeals. Wow. Ten years? Yeah. Holy cow. Now, Governor Bill Clinton set most of those dates, and I believe he had like 10 execution dates set in total. Bill Clinton was all about the death penalty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Judge Asiley presided over all of his hearings, and Fairchild's fate laid mostly in his hands. Asiley was 70 years old at the time, and he was appointed by Nixon, so way back in the day. And he was praised for his thoroughness. He toured the Mason crime scene to get familiar with the case. He walked through the abandoned farmhouse where the rape and murder occurred. He actually fell through the floor. It like oh, collapsed shit. underneath him and he hurt his leg. Now the appeal to the Arkansas Supreme Court affirmed the jury's verdict in 1984. But Fairchild's attorneys would submit four separate petitions for habeas corpus in the federal court. Now, this is when the defendant is allowed to argue issues outside the direct record of the trial. And each of these were heard by Isley. In 1986, just prior to these petitions, though, Isley received a letter from Fairchild. Well, it was a letter written by a fellow inmate on behalf of Fairchild, because remember, he couldn't read or write. Mm -hmm. This was three years into his residence on death row, and basically this letter said, one way or another, he will die in prison, whether now or 50 years from now, and he would rather it be now. So at this time, he'd kind of just given up 
Mm-hmm. Like, well, not necessarily. He just didn't want to have a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. He just either wanted to be free or he wanted to die right then. I can understand that. So, Isley wanted to hear what Fairchild had to say in person, so he called for an appearance in court, and Fairchild said, just like I said, I have this death sentence and I'm ready to get it over with. But Fairchild's mother and his lawyers really tried to talk him into fighting for his life, but Fairchild just stuck to his guns on that one. Their strategy pretty much moving forward was to challenge the stances that would win him a new trial rather than those that would only yield another sentence. Mm-hmm. So that kind of probably hurt him in the long run because, I mean, he either wanted to go free or die, and that's just not how this works. So in the first petition, Fairchild's attorney argued that Fairchild received ineffective assistance of counsel. So basically, his trial lawyers didn't challenge his arrest as being constitutional and that his confession was forced, therefore making it unreliable. Well, Judge Isley denied these claims in 1987. Then in the second petition, his lawyers argued that Fairchild didn't understand his constitutional rights before confessing because of his mental retardation. Now, this was definitely up for debate because... Fairchild had standard IQ test scores of 63 and 60, which were definitely well within that range to be considered mentally retarded. Yeah, Ricky Ray Rector, very similar to what you're talking about, He his IQ was 70. That's what they put him at. And that was after he, got sh- he shot himself in the head. Correct, yes. Wow. Now, he did score an 87 in a previous state psychiatric evaluation he had difficulty understanding the concept of wave and test to see if he understood his Miranda rights mm-hmm. but he did have some understanding of the concept of giving up one's rights it's still hard to kind of go one way or the other right like did he understand that whatever said could be used against him in the court of law like those confessions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like in situations like this, if he doesn't understand his rights, a police officer could just say, sign this, and he's going to sign that probably. If a police officer tells him to say something, he's probably going to say it, whether it's out of fear or just stupidity. But he's been arrested quite a few times in his past, so I feel like he might understand it. I don't know. I just have to be a fly in the room. I know. In one of these confessions, because... I feel like my face is just, ugh, the whole time. It's so hard to know which who's telling the truth in this and situation. it's been so long ago. Yeah, I just wish I was there. 40 years makes a big difference. Yeah. And like we were talking about before we started the, this episode... Years. 30 years. I can't math. do math. <laughs> just because... He, like, failed these IQ tests doesn't mean he doesn't have street smarts, right? Right. That's a lot different than book smarts, I feel like. And I'm sure the way he grew up in the area he's from, he had to have street smarts. Yeah, just to survive. Mm-hmm. And he was able to, like, elude the police in Russellville, you know, out of the bus. And he was able to, like, 
avoid them for six days. I mean, that takes something. Yeah. But then again, he wasn't smart enough to not realize that his face was out there. So when he went to that house, he didn't even think about being recognized. True. But I mean, he had $200 to his name. He'd been on the run for six days. I'm sure he was delirious. Probably hadn't gotten much sleep. I'm sure he was just, he needed help at that point. He was Mm -hmm. probably ready to give up. But then I just think about, like, he played along with the whole Harold Green thing. Yeah. Because it was what they wanted to hear. Did they say his name on that video you watched? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So they were leading him with their questions? Mm Mm-hmm. Kind of. Now, Isley didn't believe Fairchild's claim of mental retardation. Isley wrote in his 130-page opinion after the hearing that... All parties to this controversy acknowledge that Mr. Fairchild is of below normal intelligence, is a functional illiterate, and that he had a disastrous academic experience. But then he concluded to say that Fairchild is not now retarded and was not in 1983. He called Fairchild a con man. So So he just assumes that they... Gave him that low IQ score because he doesn't know, like, things that are educational, which is... Yeah, I guess. I'm sure they asked him several questions that he would have learned in school growing up, but if he had difficulty in school or didn't graduate or whatever, then he wouldn't have known those answers. Hear me out on this. Say you're in Fairchild's position, you're in his shoes right now, and you're asked to take an IQ test... Would you purposely do bad on this IQ test to... Have you told me what it was going to be for? Because if they were like, hi, we're going to try and prove that you're mentally retarded. Why would you want to do good on this test, though? That's what I'm saying. Like, if he knew the circumstances around the test, or or if I, if I knew... If if I do bad on this test, it's going to help me out in the long run. I'm going to do bad on the test. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time... He's illiterate. He probably True. doesn't know what half the words are True. that they're asking. It's tough. Yeah, that is really difficult. That second petition was also denied in 1989. The third one, so new evidence was brought forward that backed their initial claim that the confessions were coerced by force, making it unreliable. Judge Siley dismissed this petition in 1990, but the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ordered the district court to conduct an evidentiary hearing to determine the validity of the claim. So this took 14 days. It was originally only supposed to take three days. The court listened to witnesses testify to the abuse they received at the hands of Sheriff Robinson. Fairchild's lawyers found three police witnesses who told the court about the alleged abuse that went on at the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office. So first you have Larry Dalton. He was a former Russellville police officer. He testified that he saw an an unidentified Pulaski County deputy slap Fairchild so hard that his head hit the wall behind him at at the Pope County Jail. And Dalton also was on the side that the police dog Jubilee was ordered to attack Fairchild after he was already in custody. Huh. 
Then you have former Pulaski County Deputy Calvin Rawlins, who testified that he was at the sheriff's headquarters the night Fairchild gave his confession. He said that he heard Major Larry Dill yelling racial remarks in the direction of Fairchild. Then he said he heard what sounded like an open-handed blow hitting skin, like a smack across the head or something. Rollins was asked that night to help with the video equipment, and he said that when he zoomed in on Fairchild's face, he could clearly see that his lips were swollen, he had a black eye, and a broken nose. Damn. Now, I didn't see any of that in the video, but it was kind of, I mean, I'm sure the it's camera grainy was like old. probably over 10 feet away. It was old, too. Yeah, bad quality. Frank Gibson testified that it was common knowledge at the sheriff's office that Fairchild was beaten into confessing. One form of abuse that I heard about over and over again that allegedly happened in the Tommy Robinson era as county sheriff was the phone book technique. Have you heard about that? No. They'd place a phone book on top of their heads and hit it with a blackjack or baton, however you want to call it. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't leave any marks, but it'd still hurt like hell. Huh. How interesting. So I don't know if that's true or not, but I heard it multiple times, so it very well could have been. But Judge Isley found all three of these men to not be credible witnesses. So really? Rollins had quit the force in 1984. He had this long-standing disagreement with Major Dill. Frank Gibson, who left in 1989, had secured immunity from prosecution for his testimony. And Dalton had been fired from the Russville Police Force from blowing the whistle on brutality there. And he might just have just some hatred towards police now. Hmm. Fairchild's lawyers brought in 12 of the men who were questioned in the murder of Greta Mason by the Pulaski County deputies. I talked about them earlier, but I'll bring, I'll talk about it more in depth here. So all 12 were black men, all but one were allegedly beaten. Several were bloodied up really bad. Now, of course, all this was, there's no proof of it. It's just all hearsay. Hearsay. All were pushed and shoved and knocked around. According to them, they were threatened and called racial names. They were all told the same thing. We know you were involved. We know you raped and killed that nurse. We're going to do to you what you did to her if you don't tell us what happened. And they said that the, the police already had a confession written out for these men and were trying to get them just to sign it. Some of the men said that the deputies would put a gun in their mouth and pull the trigger, but the gun being empty, you know, just trying to scare the shit out of them. Yeah, I'd be peeing my pants. Whoa, right? And Robert Fairchild being one of them. He said that Major Dill choked him with a wet towel until he lost consciousness and shit himself. And he had to return home in an orange jumpsuit because his original clothes were just a mess. So the wet towel technique was used because it didn't leave scarring somehow. Huh. Well, I mean, I guess we could try it out later yeah. if you want. <laughs> Isley believed that Robert Fairchild was someone with no respect for the truth. We know that he was a criminal anyways, and by this time he was already convicted for 40 years, so 
Yeah. And I honestly believe that he was the one to kill Greta Mason in the first place. Yeah, because if that's... I if, think, if Barry was with his brother, they were together doing stuff, you would listen to your brother or, you know, be afraid of him at least and do what he tells you. Like, if he's like, hey, let's get this girl. Even if Barry was kind of on the dumb side, was like, I don't want to do it. Right, if he was just in the car looking through her purse and Robert was the one actually that took her to the farmhouse and, and yeah. killed her. I mean, that could have almost been like the same scenario. If she was outside that furniture store, you know, maybe she forgot to lock her car because, you know, it's that, it's that time. You know, you don't really think about that kind of stuff. What if they were in her car looking and she came out and Robert grabbed her? So maybe Barry Possibly. was just the innocent one, but he was still a part of it. Right. Now, Isley's response to most of these witnesses was that they may be true, but it couldn't really be proven definitively. He said in most of the cases, he felt like the, the men were lying and seemed to be modifying their stories to match. Each with, other. Yeah, to match kind of with what Fairchild had claimed. And Isley found it suspicious that all these men would come forward now about their abuse. Like, why wait all this time? Right, that's because I heard them talking about that downstairs when I was trying to read, and I, and I said something like that to you, right? I was like, what are the odds that 13 men all say the same thing about the same deputies, about the same department, unless they all, like, planned on doing True. that? But it could be like the Deshaun Watson, where he had like 60 women all come forward and say that he... Did all the stuff during the massages. You don't know anything about that? I have no idea who oh, that dude, is. Oh, dude, you need to look that up. <laughs> Shit. The football player? You okay, Falco? Hey, no one called you over here, Crete. Go back to your cubby. But I can kind of get why they didn't say anything for the longest time, because what are they going to do? Are they going to call the police, you know, on the police? Tommy Robinson said most of these guys were thugs and ex-convicts, so he'd be surprised if the judge takes what they said as credible. True. And the court, again, dismissed the claims. They found that only a few of the witnesses had probably been abused or intimidated in some manner. Fairchild's attorney, Richard Burr, argued that Fairchild was more vulnerable to the abuse than the others because of his mental retardation. His IQ was in the low 60s in a number of tests, which is well in the range to be considered that. In the fourth and final habeas petition in 1993, the evidence showed that Fairchild was not the one who shot and killed Miss Mason. He was an accomplice. The state failed to prove under Arkansas law beyond a reasonable doubt that the, the defendant himself had acted with extreme indifference to the value of human life. Isley said that Fairchild had expressed both great surprise and disapproval of the murderous turn of events. So he was talking about when Fairchild said he heard the gunshots and said he run up in the house and asked his partner in crime, whoever it was, what you done did. He said that the state had failed to prove that Fairchild had a guilty mental state and in, actually intended for Greta Mason to die. And Judge Isley ordered that the death sentence be reversed and that a sentence of life in prison without parole be imposed. 
Which is not what he wants either. Which it's kinda, really not. Which kind of sucks. But that didn't even last long because the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed that decision. So. Oh, really? Yeah, they ruled that all four of these petitions for habeas corpus constituted an abuse of the writ. They held that it was too late to make the argument of the Arkansas Capital Punishment Statute. Only a showing of actual innocence could overcome this. As a result, they reinstated the death sentence. So I well, guess in that situation, do they they have to do guilty until proven innocence kind of thing instead of the reverse? Well, I was just thinking you're going through all this, and they never said he killed her. He was just charged with felony murder because he was involved in the crime that led to her death. Right. And the jurors... So that's fine. I feel like that should have stood no matter what because they're not saying, hey, you pulled the trigger. They're just saying, hey... You were in the kidnapping involved that led to the murder. Right. So to me, regardless, that should have stayed as is. Yeah. Unless they were like able to prove how they they forced him to confess or something, but Yeah. If he did if he wasn't actually there, then like That kind of sucks. That sucks, but we don't know. Nope. Nobody knows but him. There's no cameras back then. There's nothing like that. Now, on August 11th, 1995, the Arkansas Clemency Board failed by just one vote to recommend clemency, which was their closest vote on record at the time. Wow. On August 31st, 1995, Barry Lee Fairchild became the 11th Arkansan to be put to death under the state's modern capital punishment statute. Was it lethal injection? Yes. Or, okay. In 2002, the U.S. Supreme Court declared in Atkins v. Virginia the execution of the mentally retarded to be an unconstitutional violation of the Eighth Amendment against cruel and unusual punishment. They said that mentally retarded defendants face a special risk of wrongful execution because of the possibility that they will unwittingly confess to crimes they didn't commit. So if this was 20 years later, who knows? Yeah, because same thing, going back to Ricky Ray, he was was put to death in 92. So So 10 years later, yeah. yeah. Crazy. So just before um, your guy here, he was put to death by lethal injection, and it was almost the same method through. Mm -hmm. But, man, that's just a long process. For both sides, 12 years. Mm-hmm. And you want to punish the right people. You want you want it to get the right guy. Yeah, because think, think of her family being like, oh, we won, we got the guy. And then you just hear, oh, wait. Oh, you did good. Oh, wait. Oh, we did good. Oh, wait. You mean, I mean. Ten different execution back dates. Back like, and forth. I know the prosecutor's job is to seek justice, not to seek convictions, and they often get that kind of mixed up, you know? I think so, too. I think so, too. Then as far as, like, the county deputies, I feel like there just wasn't evidence to go off of, and they were probably receiving a lot of pressure from the family, from the community, Mm -hmm. to arrest somebody 
Tommy's re-elections. Yeah, probably <laughs> Tommy. Yeah, exactly. Maybe had no other choice but to just put their hands on some of these men and... I guess. I mean, you you see it in movies and TV shows all the time, them roughing them up for confessions, and you just think it's all Hollywood, it but... It probably happens everywhere. Why else yeah. would they make that in movies if it didn't exactly. really happen? Exactly. There's got to be some truth behind everything. Yeah. All these articles that I read, I, I I wish there would have been more emphasis on Greta as the victim in all these articles instead of... Focusing on him. Yeah, they all focus so much on Barry Lee Fairchild. Like, I get it. He very easily could have been a victim in this case, kind of. Like, he, he could have not done it, but he could have. Right. But she definitely did not deserve what no, she got. poor she Greta. She was the victim that needs to be focused on here. Yeah, because she, she was just following her dream. She had gotten a great job. She just moved here. Bless her heart, she probably didn't know what was the bad side of town when she went furniture shopping. That's a very good point. Cause you Do never, you know where Washington Avenue is? In North Little Rock? Yeah. Yeah, that's like Argenta, isn't it? Washington? Hold on. Oh. <sighs> yeah. Bad? Bad part of town? Uh, It's right... So, today, it would be one street over from the parlor tattoo shop. Right before you can cross the river okay. into downtown Ugh. Little Rock. So... I mean, that's like a remotely shitty area because it's not far from Rose City. Oh. It's not far from that side of North Little Rock. It's just behind Dickie Stevens ballpark. So you've got that whole area down there where there's... They're trying to... Like today, they're trying to make it prettier and they've had a lot of developers buying land and flipping houses and trying to make it look more sophisticated and modern down that way. But that's like a couple miles from the drug rehab I worked at. So a lot of crime down in Pike there. Avenue. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's, Pike Avenue is bad. That's always been a bad area. So I'm sure whatever store that was, she was like, Oh look, here's a furniture store. Let me go look inside. Maybe she looked at several other stops at that point and was like nothing. And so she's like, let me go one, one more place. And then I'll call it a day, and maybe she just didn't know that area. Victim of opportunity. Probably. A lot of our stories involve those. Yeah, so like I said, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in that interrogation room. That mm -hmm. Me too. Answered a lot of questions, but yeah, that is the case of Marjorie Greta Mason. That's horrible that it wasn't more about her. That was all about... Him. I tried to I know. find as much as I could to put in there about her. I know. We always do. Mm -hmm. I just, I think it's kind of funny you talking about Tommy Robinson because I talked about him and then you bringing up Bill Clinton because I talked about him in Ricky Ray's uh, episode and I had pulled up my, my notes from Ricky Ray. And that time was when Clinton was running for presidency. So he was looking to be firm on crime and capital punishment. So in 92, Clinton had insisted that Democrats should no longer feel guilty about protecting the innocent, taking a position in support of capital punishment. So that 
there's never going to be clemency in his mind. Yeah, I saw where the some NAACP reps had come to the the governor's office to speak with Bill Clinton mm-hmm. during that time to try to get him to get on their side with Fairchild, but he was he wasn't even in his office. He was like outside planting a tree or something and just had no interest in it. I also have a note on here. It said in uh, 1992, he had set 25 dates of death row inmates. I'm sure. Dang. I'm sure Barry Lee was one of them at that time. Hmm. Good job, love. I know that was a rough one for you. Yeah, it was hard to... I wasn't going to top yours, so... Oh, it's fine. <laughs> you've you've got some good ones. And you have a whole... I, if y'all could have seen the screenshot he sent me of the list of cases to do, I mean, I have nothing written really? down like that. I'll just think... You or, can steal mine. It's fine. I would never steal from you. I would never do that. But I forgot to tell in the introduction about dad's stories that I told you about. Oh, yeah. Okay. About the Mary Lee Orsini. Yes. Okay. So not to not to go back to my episode the last couple of weeks, but I just thought this was crazy. Dad had listened to it, and he was like, yeah, I remember seeing a, a car with the license plate Cajun on it driving on Osage. And for people not around here, Osage is the street that Pontiac Drive is off of, which was... Mary Lee Orsini's residence and Osage used to be the main street we would use to turn onto Mission Road, which is where our restaurant was. And so when dad was saying he used to see the license plate, I was like, well, that's probably because Bill's wife, Alice MacArthur, was driving around trying to keep her eye on Mary Lee's house. Maybe she thought she'd find Bill's car there or just trying to keep an eye on Mary in general. That's crazy, though, that your dad can remember that. But you did say that that car was very unique. And that's the only person with that license plate. Uh And then he also was talking about how he would have our beer delivery guys give him stories about delivering beer to Bob Trout's place (laughs) and just hearing all the gossip and stuff. So I just... I just thought that was a really cool little small world connection. A little tidbit. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, that's a wrap for today. If you want to see pictures of our critters or if you want to see photos of people that we talk about in our cases, you can go to our Instagram, Caught Red Podcast, spelled P-A-W-D. You can send us messages if you have any episode requests. We love getting those. If you want to chat about anything, hit us up. We have a lot of people that just send us articles about like random stuff going, oh, we thought of y'all. Look at this weird thing. We're like, okay, cool. Awesome. And if you like us enough, you should go rate, review And subscribe so you can make sure you catch all the new episodes that come out every week. One day we're going to do a bonus again. (laughs) I think I just jinxed us because every time we talk about it, we never do one. I was supposed to work on it this week, but procrastination. Yeah, it's fine. You've only had three weeks to do all your things. Hush. (laughs) 
Until next time. Stay local. Shop local. Murder local. <laughs>